Hey, everyone. Welcome to Toast and Topics. Today, we have another fantastic guest on the show, one of my first and best friends from Dartmouth, Kyle Mullins. Kyle is now a reporter on Forbes's Money and Politics team, where he investigates all things related to the intersection of money and politics, including political mega donors, fundraising, the wealth of those holding or seeking public office, and the lead up to the 2024 elections. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Sachin. Uh, you know, long time listener, first time caller here. It's good to have you on. So, you know, staking out a career in journalism is not exactly an easy thing for young people to accomplish nowadays. And just in my experience, I've seen that it's far more common for people to find themselves in finance or consulting related fields just because those are the jobs that are most readily available. And so I'm really interested in how you uh, became passionate about journalism in the first place and how you stuck through it throughout college. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you guys so much for having me on. And on the journalism stuff, I mean, I think it is definitely a tough industry. Uh, you know, it's a shrinking industry. It's not the easiest one to uh, to break into. Um, I think the only way to get into journalism is to just start doing it because anyone actually can be a journalist. Uh, I got started in high school. I was interested. I always liked writing and was really interested in it and uh, took over my high school paper fairly quickly. And then when I got to, to Dartmouth, I, uh, you know, worked my way up the ranks of the student newspaper there and eventually became editor in chief. And that gave me kind of a, you know, not only was I doing reporting, but I was doing editing as well. It gave me kind of a whole of business, uh, you know, uh, view of the, of the industry and, you know, from there, uh, you know, applied to various internships, you know, got a couple, was rejected from most, um, but Forbes took me and now, now here I am. It's a, uh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky to be where I am, but it's a, uh, it's, like I said, it's definitely a tough industry, but um, the only way to do it is to start writing and filming and photographing and doing whatever you can to, um, you know, start sharpening those skills. Yeah, that's a great success story. And, you know, we'd be interested to hear more about some of the work that you do on the money and politics team at Forbes, you know, what are some of the kinds of investigations that you and your team typically work on? And what are some of the favorite pieces that you've worked on during your time there so far? Absolutely. Uh, so we do a couple different things. It all depends on kind of where in the political news cycle, the four year, two year, even sometimes political news cycle we are in. Um, so last summer was the summer before the, or two summers ago now, summer 2022 is when I was first at Forbes. And uh, all of my stories were focused on uh, big donors to uh, political candidates running for the Senate at the time. I was focused on the Senate. And so what, you know, mega wealthy billionaires and, and mega millionaires are funding these campaigns? How How is how, that working? And then um, I rejoined Forbes after uh, my senior year at uh, in college. And um, now we're working on stuff that's a little, you know, 2023 is a bit of an off year for elections, right? So we're doing a lot of stuff about preparing for the presidential races. Um, we're doing the, these net worth valuations for all the presidential candidates. Um, people can see we have a lander with all of those candidates now from every party, all the independents, everybody. Uh, we have a lander with all those net worth valuations and stories about each candidate on Forbes' website. And then we also have, um, you know, the, the other projects we're working on now, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're working on the Supreme Court right now. Um, and hopefully those that, that there tends to be less turnover there. So hopefully those will stand the test of time a little bit. And then after that, I, uh, I assume we're moving on to Congress, but uh, we'll, you know, we'll see what, what the team wants to do next. 
that's all great. And I'm sure that Congress is going to be a fair amount of work just considering the number of people that are there relative to, say, the Supreme Court. Um, but taking a step back, your latest series of pieces has focused on the finances of various Republican presidential candidates, including um, Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, and Doug Burgum. And so could you spend some time talking about the work that you've done on these uh, presidential candidate valuations specifically? Sure, absolutely. Um, it's a coincidence that I have written only about Republicans. There's a lot more Republican candidates than hmm. uh, than, every, than anything else right now. Um, but we do, I just want to be super clear, we not only cover the Republicans, we cover the Democrats, we cover people running as independents. We've got valuations on our site right now for Joe Biden, for RFK Jr., for uh, a little uh, preview. I think Cornell West is coming out tomorrow. Uh, that should be a fun story. But um, yeah, what are we doing on here? You know, the, the goal is to show people how these people made their money. Um, you know, was it related to their political work? How, how, how did their how did their the story of their wealth and the story of their politics, uh, you know, converge, diverge, uh, you know, correlate? How did how did these two things work together? Um, and so it involves a lot of reporting on, uh, you know, on real estate on financial disclosures that they have to file because they're candidates. Um, and a lot of our reporting is focused on narrowing the ranges on those financial disclosures. And, uh, you know, and then digging into a lot of documents. Um, that's that, that that's that's most of the work that I'm doing uh, for, in, on a given day. And so, um, you know, just to take a couple of the candidates you mentioned, you know, you have people like Ron DeSantis. He's a young guy, fairly, uh, f- fairly new to politics, I would say, compared to some of the other folks on the stage. Another Typical story would be like Chris Christie, somebody who was governor of New Jersey, left office, um, and uh, his wife worked on Wall Street for a while. But then, uh, so she was the breadwinner for a while. And then after he left office, he started doing a lot of legal work, consulting work, all stuff that, you know, his political career had set him up to do very well. And now he's a multimillionaire. So, um, hmm. you know, there's these uh, sort of differing stories going here about, uh, you know, which candidates uh, are are richer and poorer? Which candidates are um, uh, how the like I said how they made their money and how that impacts their politics and vice versa? And you know how do you research this actually and determine some of this information on political candidates? Given that much of it is presumably private. Yeah. So um, Forbes is Forbes has been valuing the rich and powerful for decades. Um, it's, it, in some ways it's easier than valuing a billionaire. And in some ways it's a lot harder, uh, because, uh, you know, uh, sometimes we're dealing with numbers that are a lot closer that are, uh, you know, the difference between five and 15 million is actually a much bigger difference, uh, you know, in, in thinking about how wealthy someone is than maybe the differences between two and 3 billion, um, Mm -hmm. when we're talking about these billionaires. So, uh, and then the other thing to note is, again, these candidates have to file financial disclosures. There's lots of holes in these disclosures. So we have to find ways to report out the stuff that isn't there. But uh, they have to file disclosures that show sort of in broad ranges, you know, oh, I own uh, between X and Y of of a particular stock or of between Y and Z of, you know, a particular mutual fund. Uh, You know, you can, I'm I'm not going to get into specifics because it'll, it'll bore you, but uh, that's the that's the the general idea is you know we use a combination of the financial disclosures, publicly available documents, uh, and we put it all together to to make a story. Something that you know struck us about your work is that many of the 2024 candidates started from very humble beginnings. Uh, for example, one of your pieces mentioned Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota, 
who worked in his own family's business in a grain elevator throughout high school and college and that he, quote, shoveled so much rotten grain that a local restaurant refused to seat him indoors um, due to the smell. So, you know, at the same time, uh, it, it seems like it costs so much money to run for president and frankly, for any public office. So, you know, one question we had is how are people of fairly modest means able to actually finance some of these expensive campaigns in the first place? Sure. Um, yeah, so that, that takes me back to uh, what I was doing last summer. You know, where where's all the money funding the actual campaigns coming from? Um, so the, the short answer is that they don't. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, if you're a billionaire like Donald Trump, you can put as much money into the campaign as you want. But why would you do that? You know, you don't want to have to sell a building uh, to put a couple hundred million dollars into, into a campaign or something when you can raise the money from donors. Um, and, you know, for, for better or for worse, I'm not going to weigh in on the, um, on, you know, the moral aspect here. But, you know, the, the Supreme Court about a little over 10 years ago opened the kind of opened the floodgates to uh, near unlimited money in, in politics. Uh, and so people are able to, you know, especially the ultra wealthy are able to donate large amounts of money to uh, campaigns uh, or not even directly to the campaigns, but to, uh, you know, committees that support the campaigns. Um, and so that's why you get stories like, you know, just the other day, um, I'm blanking on the billionaire now, but, but, you know, it was just reported that Nikki Haley had picked up a new prominent billionaire backer. Um, and that's important because it means that Nikki Haley will be able to continue funding her campaign or, you know, if this billionaire is giving to a committee that's supporting her, it means she might be able to spend less on ads from her own campaign and she can invest more in staff, that kind of thing. Um, so you know that, that that's the that's the kind of thing is what we're talking about. Um, but for people who don't have uh, you know large uh, amounts of personal wealth, um, you know, thinking about someone like Asa Hutchinson, uh, former governor of Arkansas, uh, now running for president, uh, he's worth about a million and a half dollars according to our estimates. Um, you know, he's not going to be able to fund that campaign himself. He's got to go out and raise the money, um, and that's uh, that's a little bit harder. Yeah, understood. Well, having read a lot of your work, it sounds to me as though running for president is for many actually a great way to make money. But the interesting thing is that the money usually isn't directly in politics. Um, We've already talked about some of the profiles of presidential candidates that you've done. And with many of them, they've made millions from various activities outside of their political careers, including, for example, book sales. And so could you tell us a bit about this dynamic of earning wealth after a political career? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's there's lots of different ways that politicians earn money after their political careers. Um, a lot of them write books. Um, they do that while they're still in office. Uh, and you can, you know, if, if you're a high profile politician, you can get a pretty big advance on that book that will, uh, you know, make things a little bit, a uh, little bit, a little bit more comfortable for you. Um, but afterwards, a lot of these people end up on, you know, they could end up on corporate boards. They could end up on, uh, you know, doing legal and consulting work like uh, Chris Christie, Mike Pence, those those folks have done. Um, and they can often, they can bring in more clients and more business because of the connections they made while they were in government. Um, there's this there's this expression that the government is, to some extent, a revolving door. Um, and sometimes people will go into office, they'll work in office for a couple of years. They're not making incredible salaries because they're working in for the government. Uh, they're making, you know, don't get me wrong. Sometimes they're making quite good money. I mean, no one's gonna, you know, I think, uh, 
you know, oftentimes governors are making $150,000, $180,000 salaries. That's, you know, nothing to, nothing to, I, I wish I was making that much. Um, but they, uh, you know, then they leave office and they have all these opportunities that have opened up to them because of the connections that they made while they were in office. Um, whether that's a corruption concern or not, you know, there are plenty of, uh, plenty of folks in that space that will tell you that, uh, that that is an issue when it comes to issues of corruption, issues of, uh, uh, conflicts of interest, that kind of thing. And there's other folks who say it's totally fine. Um, but that's the, um, that, that, that there's a, there's a lot of different ways. Oh, and the other thing I should mention is speeches. Uh, lots of, lots of people, especially when you're running for president or recently ran for president or are planning to run for president. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a pretty penny to be made on the speaking circuit. So. Yeah, that's all very interesting. Um, and you know, so what are some of the implications of, people profiting off of their political careers in this manner you know is it all fair play or do you think that it skews the incentives of those who are running for public office such that they are solely running to gain wealth afterwards um i'm an optimist and i choose to believe that a lot of these folks probably are not running solely because they want to make money um they they're they're probably running for office because they care deeply about certain issues or about the country and they want to uh, bring their uh, whatever their ideological beliefs are or whatever to the table. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I tend not to believe that people are running, you know, th there are better ways to make money than, than running for, uh, for political office. You're not going to, you're not going to become a, you know, a mega millionaire or, or a billionaire by running for political office. Um, with all that said, uh, there are plenty of folks, especially in, in you know civil society, who will tell you that this does create conflicts of interest. You have folks who um, I'll take Asa Hutchinson just as one example. Um, he again, former governor of Arkansas, is currently running for president. Um, he was the uh, undersecretary. He was an undersecretary in the Department of Homeland Security right after it was created in the early two thousands. And then he, you know, he he did his time in the government, worked there for a couple of years, um, and then uh, I think he ran for governor in, in Arkansas the first time and lost. And um, rather than you know go back to the federal government, uh, he picked up some positions on a couple corporate boards, uh, and some of those corporate boards were with companies that were selling products back to the very department that he had been an administrator in just a short time before. So you look at that situation like I don't have any evidence myself that like you know this that this caused you know that there were contracts that were given out that shouldn't have been or anything like that. I'm not I'm not even trying to imply that, but I'm saying that there's. Uh, there's an appearance there that um, could cause people to question, uh, you know, the integrity or their the faith in political figures, and uh, and you know, there's I think there's legitimate questions there. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good answer, and it makes a lot of sense. So, you know, what are also I think one of the greatest examples of how money and politics intersect today is also with President Trump or former President Trump. Um, and the former president is now dealing with a trial in New York related to him exaggerating the value of some of his businesses. Um, and I can imagine that Trump's financial empire in particular is very difficult to assess. So what has reporting on this subject in particular been like in your experience? So yeah, that's a great question. And I, the funny thing is, I was I'm kind of on this team to do a lot of stuff other than Trump because Trump it's it, it's been Trump 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 for for so long, uh, especially at the Money and Politics team at the magazine that covers billionaires, right? Hmm. And so, uh, 
you know, we we, we have to think about uh, uh, there are other folks that cover Trump at Forbes. And the benefit that we have at Forbes is uh, we've been covering Trump for decades as a billionaire. Um, and our, our wealth team, which I'm kind of in a subset of, uh, has been, you know, trying to figure out how much he was worth as a billionaire uh, for for since the, you know, I think the 1980s, at least. Um, and so there's this there's this this incredible depth of reporting on on him and, you know, on, on other uh, older billionaires. Uh, who end up running for president, someone like Mike Bloomberg, for example, um, you know, that, that, that we can really bring to bear there. And uh, what you, you actually see this in the trial um, that you just mentioned is this uh, Trump's facing the civil trial right now over whether his uh, company, uh, the Trump organization, whether they committed sort of systematic fraud um, in, a, in a variety of different ways. And um, oftentimes, you know, the attorney general of New York will go up on the stand and she'll throw up a headline from Forbes showing that he lied about the value of a penthouse that he owns, for example, um, or, you know, some some similar things like that. And my boss, uh, Dan Alexander, who's been kind of on the Trump beat sent for, for, for years now, um, he was in the courtroom and, you know, he'd be, he'd be sitting in the courtroom covering the trial and an article would go up on the screen with his byline on it, which was which was just sometimes mm. wild, wild to see. So Trump is a Trump is a fascinating uh case of um how do you cover something and the other thing with trump is his finances are so complex um because he has a real estate empire and much of it is private um it's taken a long time to get a, a good concrete valuation on him you know even even getting to that number has taken a a lot of of uh blood sweat and tears reporting uh but i i, I would i would feel pretty confident about that number at this point Kyle, this is all fascinating. And with everything that you've said about the historical reporting that Forbes has done here, I want to pivot a bit and ask a question about Forbes itself. Um, Forbes has always been a really interesting newspaper to me because on the one hand, it offers some of the most comprehensive analysis that you can find anywhere of the rich and powerful. And in that sense, it's really a way of holding money to account. But that focus does sometimes glamorize its subjects for their wealth, I think, and it comes at the risk of not really scrutinizing them for how they got it. Uh, just as one example, I'm thinking of how hard some rich people work to get on lists like the Forbes 400. And so as a journalist, I'm really curious about how you've walked that fine line here. Yeah, that's a that's a really good, really interesting question, and I mean, this is a critique that that Forbes receives a lot. Um, I think the way we the 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 newsroom culture at Forbes, the way that I think about it, and the way that I know a lot of my fellow reporters think about it, is we live in a a capitalist society, right? Uh, that's the economic system that is dominant in our country today. And um, Forbes doesn't think that that's a bad thing. Um, if you actually look at Forbes's institutional values and stuff, one thing is that we celebrate success. We celebrate economic and 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 uh, success. Um, and but the uh, we also uh, believe that in a capitalist society, um, wealth is a form of power. Uh, it's not the only form of power, but it is a form of power. And so, uh, and it's it's in, it's sometimes the main form of power. And so. Uh, our job is to hold truth to power. And to do that, we have to hold truth to money. Um, and this is, I mean, you're absolutely right on folks who who will mislead the public uh, to, and, and sometimes even mislead Forbes to try to get themselves on these lists. Uh, you know, everyone from Kylie Jenner to Donald Trump to, uh, I, was, I was a fact checker on an investigation a couple months ago into a Hong Kong 
businessman named Calvin Lowe, who had tried for years to get on the Forbes list. Um, and we, I mean, exposed him to be a, uh, a liar about his, about his, uh, his financial success. Um, he was, he was nowhere close to being a billionaire, but, uh, the, the, the point here is, yeah, people, there are absolutely these, um, you know, examples of, of folks that have, uh, you know, again, tried to mislead the public, tried to mislead Forbes. Um, and the best we can do is catch them and, uh, and tell people when they are misleading the public. Uh, that's, that's what good journalists, ideally, that's what good journalists do. Yeah, that's, that's great, Kyle. Um, and you know, another unrelated question is I had read a separate article that said between 2001 and 2017, the number of college graduates going into public service jobs dropped by over 15%. Um, yet I feel like these are arguably some of the most important jobs to be filled by our best and brightest graduates. So, you know, given uh, everything we've talked about, do you have any thoughts on why many people might not go into public service or related jobs like, you know, journalism straight out of college and whether there are any incentives that can be created to get some of our top college graduates straight into these roles right away? That's a fascinating question that I don't have an amazing answer to. I wish I could tell you, uh, you know, right now how to save the journalism industry uh, and make sure that all of us mm -hmm. were getting paid, uh, you know, massive six-figure salaries, just like I would be if I was working at a, uh, you know, a consultancy or, a, you know, a, um, an engineering firm or a, a big tech company or whatever. Um, the, the, the thing I will say is I think... I think college students should ask themselves, there's always a number of factors in what people choose to do with their lives. And I'm not here to judge one thing or the other. Um, that's not, you know, I don't think it's fair to do that. Um, but what I will say is ask yourself whether or not, you know, you, 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 if you have a college degree in this country, you're already privileged in that you are, you know, I think it was what, one third of Americans have a college degree, something like that. So you're already in this, in this sort of, minority upper class uh, or upper middle class of this, uh, you know, of the country. Um, ask yourself what you can do with that knowledge, with that privilege, with that, uh, those skills that you've developed over the course of your college career to bring the most value possible to, to the country, to your family, to, uh, to the world, you know, however you want to approach it. Um, and if that means, uh, you know, going and working for a, one of the classic things that, uh, elite college students go work for, uh, you know, at a consulting firm or at a, at a, at a big tech company or whatever, that's fine. I, I, I don't, I don't really judge that. That's not my, that's not my, uh, you know, place to, to say anything. Um, I think I have a passion for journalism. And if I had let that passion go to waste, I, I feel like it would have been, it would have been sad. Um, it would have been sad for me. Um, and uh, it would have been, you know, I, 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 yeah, it would have been a waste. So um, I don't feel like I answered your question very well, but uh, that's, that's, that's my best stab at it. <laughs> follow your dreams. That's, uh, that's good. Yeah. And I could have just said, follow your dreams. And that would have been a much more concise way of answering that. Good, good call. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that was good. So Kyle, I wanted to wrap this up with one final question for you, um, or I guess it's a two-part question really. So I'll just start at it from here. Um, the first part is, do you have any book recommendations for people who are hoping to better understand how money and politics intersect? And the second question I want to add is, how can we follow your work? Um, are there any social media platforms that we can use to 
check out your latest articles, that sort of thing. Um, so take it from there. Absolutely. Um, well, I think I'll try to answer both prongs with 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 a single answer, which is uh, the best way to follow money and politics work. Either um, you know, and, and and this is the most up to date stuff, but it's also going to get you the, the 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 deep analysis that you're looking for. Is my colleague Zach Everson has? A, I'm going to do a little log rolling here. My uh, my colleague Zach Everson has a uh, a newsletter called Checks and Imbalances. Um, and he's been writing it for a, a while now uh, for Forbes. And in it, he goes through all of the money and politics news of the week. Um, and so not only will you get everything I write, but you'll get everything that my colleagues write uh, that is related to money and politics. And you'll get other stuff that he collects, you know, from other sources across the net uh, to try to, um, you know, try to inform people. Uh, I'm really lucky that I uh, have a, you know, a newsletter that's dedicated at Forbes to you know, covering my beat. It's, 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 it's fantastic. Um, on the book side, uh, I don't, I actually don't have a great book recommendation. I wish I had a better one. I am reading uh, perversion of justice right now, which is uh, by, it's by Julie Brown. Um, and it's not directly related to money and politics, but it's, it, I, there's definitely a lot of it in there. Um, it's about the Miami Herald's investigation into the Jeffrey Epstein uh, saga and how they ended up breaking the, you know, Years after he had gotten away with a lot of his crimes, um, you know, uh, how they ended up breaking and making public a lot more information about what happened uh, and how he and his lawyers and the powerful people around him managed to twist and corrupt the legal system, political system to bend it to do what he wanted it to do. Um, so I, I'll, I'll throw that out there as a recommendation. It's not, you know, right on the nose. Campaign finance stuff tends to be really dry and really boring and not make for the most interesting books. Um, you don't want to read 300 words on it, but, uh, you could, or you don't want to read 300 pages on it, but maybe you want to read, a you know, a, um, a, a, a newsletter once a week is a, is an easy, uh, addition to your news diet that, um, if you're interested in money and politics, um, that's the way to go. So, uh, just to repeat those recommendations, the checks and imbalances newsletter from my colleague, Zach Everson at Forbes and perversion of justice by Julie Brown. Uh, I think, I think those would be good places to start. Great. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for this conversation. It was really great to learn more about your work and we both really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. Absolutely. It was an absolute privilege. And uh, I, you know, I, I will continue listening. I, I love every one of y'all's episodes. So keep them coming. Thank you, Kyle. And to our audience, we'll see you all again soon, where we will dig deeper into the recent election turmoil in Argentina. Thanks for listening to Toast and Topics. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and follow us on the podcasting platform of your choice and try sharing it with a friend or family member to see what they think. We'll catch you next time.